Please rise for the reading of the Holy Gospel. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. On their return, the apostles told Jesus all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida with them. When the crowd learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and he spoke about the kingdom of God and he cured all who had any need of healing. But as the day was wearing down, the disciples said to Jesus, send the crowd away into the surrounding villages and countryside that they can find lodging and provision for we are in a desolate place. And Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Jesus said, have them sit down in groups of about 50. And the disciples did so and made them sit down. And Jesus, taking the loaves, the five loaves and the two fish, looked up to heaven blessed them, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples set them before the people, and all ate and were satisfied. And for leftovers, 12 baskets full of broken pieces. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Father, we believe that you inspired your servant Luke to record this moment in the life of Jesus. And we believe these words not only had power in the day that Luke wrote them, but these words have power today because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we pray, Father, send your Holy Spirit to open this word for us, perhaps as never before, that we would be changed more and more to be like Christ in this world for the sake of this world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to be seated. What difference can your meager offerings make in this world? What difference can yours and my meager offerings make in such a complex, broken, and divided world? I'm talking about not just our financial offerings, but I'm not not talking about our financial offerings, but I'm talking about our time, our talents, our treasures, those things we can offer and contribute to the world. Isn't it true that so often we look at the size of the problem and we're tempted to say, what could my contribution really ever do to change this? We're living in a difficult season, a season of division, a season where injustice and hatred and fear is surrounding us. What difference can we make in such a world? I think a Texas restaurant 
down in Austin got national attention by brilliantly trying to help people laugh in response to all this hardship trying to help us to laugh in the face of everything going on in 2020. The sign outside their restaurant, they let their employees kept changing up the messages. One of those messages, speaking about 2020, I just realized that my trash goes out more often than I do. (laughs) Or this, in 20 years, our country will be run by people homeschooled by day drinkers. Or maybe the best, when this virus is over, I still want some of y'all to stay away. (laughs) We must laugh because it helps us cope with how difficult a burden we face every day. What difference can our offerings make, our meager offerings? Well, what this parable tells us If you'll turn there with me in Luke chapter nine, what this parable tells us is that our meager offerings, in fact, can make all the difference in the world. Because what this parable shows us is the truth that in the hands of Jesus, our meager offerings of our time, our talent, our treasures, our meager offerings will be multiplied and given eternal meaning. Our meager offerings in the hands of Jesus will be multiplied beyond anything we could ask or imagine and given eternal meaning and significance. See, first we got to address the fact that we often feel like our offerings are meager. I mean, look at the situation the disciples are in in this story, right? It's an impossible situation. Verse 14 says there's 5,000 men. And my apologies... To the ladies, this is the first century. They're only counting the males. But it means if there's 5,000 men and likely women and children are part of these family units accompanying Jesus, we're talking about 10 to 15,000, if not more. This is a huge crowd in the wilderness. And Jesus tells the disciples to give them something to eat. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel for the disciples in this moment. I know they're being somewhat sarcastic. It's full on mockery when they say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. I mean, it, 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 it's not respectful, but you, you kind of feel for them. Jesus, you're really great on the preaching. You're great on Torah, but let us be the realistic ones here. This ain't gonna work, Jesus. And I don't, know, I don't know about you, but in my life, I'm often the self-designated pragmatist. And, and, I, and I, at times, like to wear that like a badge of honor. Like, no, no, I'm the realist. I'm the pragmatist. In my marriage, I'm the pragmatist, and Monica's the fun one. And you, you've been there, depending on your marriage or your relationship structure, your work situations, all the different relationships in our lives, there's always a designated pragmatist. And they love to remind everyone that they're the pragmatist, right? And so Monica will have an idea or the kids will have an idea. And then dad's got to work through his pros and cons lists 
and all the issues first, they're all in the living room with their shoes on, ready to go, waiting for dad to catch up. Because the truth with most, most pragmatists don't like to face is that nine times out of 10, the fun one gets it right. Like it was all gonna be okay. The pragmatist just takes time to catch up. Now, let me be careful here. I'm not suggesting we're not called to be wise. This is why God has brought us into relationships, whether in our marriages or our workplaces that are complementary. One has one gift, one has another. I add a sense of pragmatism to our marriage. But wisdom is different than in fact hiding behind fear with your pragmatism. Most pragmatists, if we're honest, some of the time, it's not out of a caution because of true wisdom, it's we're hiding behind the fact that we don't trust God. We play the pragmatic realism card as a way of hiding behind our fear. And it's not surprising, therefore, that this story with a bunch of self-designated pragmatists and realists around Jesus, it's not surprising the story takes place in the wilderness. It happens in this place. Jesus has this moment take place in the wilderness to teach an important lesson. Because when these disciples start telling Jesus, it's not possible for you to feed this people in the wilderness, they sound just like Israel with Moses. They sound just like an unfaithful people, unwilling to trust the power of God. Listen to Psalm 78. This is exactly what's going on here in the desert again. Psalm 78, verse 17. Yet they, Israel, sinned more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? And then verse 21, it's not good news for Israel, not trusting God there. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. We need to remember that when it comes to Jesus' command in our life to give, to bring our offering, bring what you have, you give them something to eat. In one sense, as impossible as that may sound, based on the way we look at the situation, our pragmatism that would cause us to pull back from us responding in obedience is in fact often simply a lack of faith and trust in the God who's called us. It's a command. You give them something to eat. It's not a suggestion. And Jesus keeps saying it. In John chapter 21, after Peter is being reinstated, you know, Peter, the big mess up, who's three times denied Jesus, gets an opportunity in John 21 to three times affirm he loves Jesus. What does Jesus say to Peter as he reaffirms three times his love for Jesus? He says, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Again and again, Jesus is speaking over his church with a command, feed my sheep. You give them something to eat. Bring what you have for the sake of the need of the world. 
we try to justify often our, our limited offerings of our time, our talent, and our treasures because we look at the meager size of them and say they're not going to make any difference. Right? Really, you know, when you look at the size of the need in the world, what is my tithe going to do? I mean, it's, 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 it may feel like a lot of money to me, but it ain't a lot of money when I look at the need in the world. So what's it going to do? When I look at the way I spend my, my abilities, my talents, my, my gifts, and I think I, I've got things I know I could offer to contribute to a better world, but you know, do I really want to even go out my door and try? Because how's it going to make a difference? What about my time? You know, the time that I have to offer, is that time offered really going to make a fundamental difference? The, the challenge as well we have is not just that our meager size of our gifts makes us retreat from giving. We just say, well, I just won't bother. It's not going to make a big difference anyway. Who will notice? But sometimes our sense of the meagerness is actually about the meagerness of the, of the method or the mechanism. Right? Because for some of us, we actually don't look at our gifts that way at all. We say, actually, I've got a lot to give. I, I make a lot of money. I have got a lot of time. I've got a lot of abilities to offer the world. And so then the question of, of meagerness that holds us back is, can the mechanism hold this gift? Like, can the church really manage? Like, if I was really to give my time to the church, like, really give my time, like, could the church really faithfully steward that? You know, if I was, I was to give my abilities, the best of my abilities to the church, you know, could they really handle me? If I was to actually give a tithe off of what I make, could the church really take it and handle it well? I mean, we're talking about the church that Jesus founded on a rock that the gates of hell shall not prevail against. And yes, we've had unfaithful institutional churches many times. So you make sure you find a church that is faithful in its stewardship. And then you trust Jesus that the church can handle you and the fullness of you and the fullness of your gifts. It's like the man who comes to the pastor saying, you know, you talk about tithing 10%, but I can't possibly give you, the church, 10% of what I make on my large income. Can you pray with me for wisdom? And the pastor then says, sure, I can pray. Lord, reduce this man's income to a level where he can feel comfortable tithing to his local church. In all seriousness, it's not our job to second guess the command of Jesus in scripture, even if it doesn't all add up. Even if we think it doesn't add up, it's not up to us to second guess the command of Jesus. Because even when we think it doesn't add up, wait for it, somehow it adds up to more than we ever thought possible. See, our meager gift our meager offering in the hands of Jesus, this parable says, gets multiplied. And I mean multiplied like you could never imagine. Let's go back to that bit in verse 13 where they say, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. For, verse 14, there were about 5,000 men. This is mathematical language, right? The disciples are doing their equations, they're doing their sums, 
they're adding it up. And they're saying, Jesus, this doesn't add up. The need is 5,000 and we got five plus two. We got five loaves and two fishes. Again, Jesus, you're good with the Torah. Leave the math to us. This doesn't add up to 5,000. But the question is, have they really added up all the factors? Have they really considered in their equation all the factors involved? They've got the loaves. They've got the fishes. They've got the crowd. And they say it doesn't add up, but they missed one essential factor. What did they miss? Who did they forget to count? Disciples so often in our math, when we're considering our giving and its possibility, we forget to count Jesus. We forget that critical factor. Disciples' math ends up looking like this. Five loaves, two fish, plus Jesus equals 5,000. Verse 17 says they were all satisfied. It works. They forgot to factor in Jesus. But here's the thing. For those of you who are actually better at math than I am, and that's pretty much every one of you, for those of you who really like math, it's not really just five plus two plus Jesus equals 5,000. You got to think of Jesus more like the exponent. Remember the exponent back in school when they'd have that little superscript number that would be up here? And we, what do we say about the exponent? We say it's to the power of, right? And you'd end up multiplying the main number by, this, by itself this number of times. And that's how you get these gigantic numbers, right? When you start using exponents. So think of it this way. Good discipleship math actually looks like this. Five plus two to the power of Jesus equals 5,000. Jesus is not just an additional factor in the equation. He is the exponential factor. He will take our meager offerings, match it against his majesty and glory, and all of a sudden... We just fed our 5,000, or as we said, more like 15,000. Whatever that figure is, whatever that sense of the need of the world that is just way too big for you, you're right, it's way too big for you. But you bring what you have and you put it in the hands of Jesus and exponentially he takes it and multiplies it to meet the needs of the world. See, it's kind of like the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25, that parable where the master has multiple servants that he gives out his money to, and he gives different servants different amounts of money based on their ability, some a lot, some very little. And what's amazing about that story is, of course, some of the servants go and invest that money and work it, and it grows which is meant to be a metaphor for investing it in the kingdom of God, using what God has given us to see growth and life in the kingdom. And then this other servant goes and buries his treasure in the sand. And when he buries his treasure in the sand, he's doing it out of fear. But the point is when the master comes back, the one who was given two talents and has made four, and the one who was given five and has made 10, 
They both get the same word of commendation back for the master. It's not about the size of the gift you have to give. It's about your faithful rendering of it unto God. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. And just remember that Jesus is telling that parable as he's preparing for his death. He's talking about his own second coming. He's not talking abstractly. He's saying there will be a day when I, the Lord Jesus, the King of the cosmos, dead and risen for your sake, reigning over the cosmos, when I come again and I gather you together, I will look at what I've given you. And as I see that you've worked and offered your gifts in this world, these will be the words I will speak over you, regardless of the size of the gift you had to offer. There's not a lot of good television on these days. I found a show the other night that made me cry incessantly. So like just warning there, you need a box or two of tissues. In fact, I, my kids could say, I heard you like sniffling downstairs. Like I was watching it late at night and they were like, what were you watching? You were clearly sniffling and crying. And it, it, it's on Disney and it's called Clouds. Some of you may know the story. It's based on a true story. And what's amazing is, is that it's a Christian true story that's on Disney. And it's kind of overtly Christian, which is really rare and cool. It's a story of this 17-year-old named Zach Sobiek, who at 17 has been fighting cancer most of his life and has given a terminal diagnosis. He knows he's got a year to live. And he spends that year making music about his cancer and about his faith and he goes viral on YouTube and he gets a record contract in the last year of his life. And now there's this film made about this inspiring last year of his life. And there's this great moment, I'm not giving anything away, but where, I mean, you know he's gonna die. So there's the spoiler alert, right? Like he's gonna die at the end of the movie. When they're planning his funeral before he dies, his mom says to him, Let's, we gotta talk about what you want for your funeral. I love it. So explicitly Christian. He says, I don't want Psalm 23. Psalm 23. He said, it's overdone at funerals. He said, I want the parable of the talents because that makes sense to me. Of course it makes sense to him. He looks at his life and says, I got a year left. I got such a little thing left to give, but he gives it to God he offers his time, his talent, and his treasure to God for his purposes. Of course, he gets the parable of the talents. Do we? Our meager offerings in the hands of Jesus multiplied. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter three, glory to God whose power working in us can do more than we could ask or imagine. I can imagine and ask for a lot. But the promise is more than I could ask or imagine can be done by God in my life and in this world as we surrender our offerings to him. But finally, in Jesus' hands, our meager offerings are not just multiplied, but they're given meaning. 
eternal meaning. It's not just that there's more of what we offer. It's more infused with meaning, more that is being used for his glory in the world. Again, in verse 17, we're told that they were all satisfied. They all were satisfied. And Luke uses that word carefully. He he could have used other words to say, you know, their bellies were full. Satisfied. They had everything they needed in that moment. Because Luke is foreshadowing something that is coming. He's intentionally foreshadowing what's about to happen when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. See, look what Jesus does with the offering, right? The the bread and the fishes in his hands, verse 16, we're told that he takes the five loaves and the two fishes, he blesses them, he breaks them, and he gives them. And if that language of take, bless, break, give sounds familiar, it's because it is. It's the exact same actions he takes at the Last Supper. In Luke chapter 22, as he gathers with his disciples, giving us that picture of the feast that is yet to come, the foretaste that we will taste every week that we gather to remember that there is a banquet waiting for us, his actions are to take, bless, break, and give. This is a Eucharistic foreshadowing in the desert. Why? Because Jesus wants you to know, Luke, under the power of the Holy Spirit, wants you to know that the only way you can be satisfied in this world is through his body broken and given for you. This is the central message of our salvation. This is the way the world finds satisfaction. As Jesus says in another encounter about bread in John 6, he says, I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Only by Jesus' cross will I be satisfied because only by Jesus' cross is my just punishment for sin satisfied. And everything we offer, Luke is trying to say, everything we offer are measly little loaves and fishes. Not only will he multiply it, but he'll turn it and reshape it and creatively use it with his sovereign purposes to point everything to his cross and resurrection. He will use what we offer constantly and consistently to come back to that one point that the world needs to hear. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And you notice, right? That Jesus doesn't do it out of thin air. Again, the whole point, he takes the disciples' offering and through this offering, He satisfies their needs. He creatively takes what we offer to meet the need of the world, to point again and again through the way you spend your time, through the way you spend your talents, through the way you spend your treasures. He will use all of that to point to his death and resurrection. It's not loaves and fishes out of thin air. It's loaves and fishes out of disciples' pockets where the world gets satisfied. And when we see him face to face, he's going to show us just how he did it. 
He's gonna walk you through it. He'll say, all right, I'm gonna sit you down and I'm gonna show you these little moments that you didn't even think were a big deal, but man, were they a big deal in someone's life. When I was leaving Rwanda the first time I visited, I called Monica the day we were leaving, getting ready for the airport. Monica was back here in Plano and, and I called her and I said, I, I don't know what to do. I've got uh, $500 US cash in Rwandan francs. And I'll tell you, it's really hard to change Rwandan francs back in Dallas. And I was like, I, I, I'm not just, I just don't know what to do. And, and, and Monica, without missing a beat, just said, well, just give it to the archbishop of Rwanda. And I said, well, yeah, but I said, we're, we're over here building preschools. Like we're talking tens of thousands. It's like, this is kind of a, a big scope, you know, vision meeting, like 500 bucks is kind of like, isn't that like a little embarrassing? Just like I'm walking out the door, like here's 500 bucks US in Rwandan francs. And she said, just give it to the archbishop. He'll know what to do with it. And so I did, it was awkward. I'm like, I know it's small, but here you are. We left. When I came back to Rwanda the next time, do you know what the archbishop was most excited about? He wanted to show us the preschools, the preschool that we'd built as a church, but he was even more excited to say, let me show you how that gift made a difference. And he walked up and he put his arm around a young Rwandan pastor named Israel. And he said, your gift, I said, my wife's gift, your wife's gift paid for Pastor Israel's master's degree. And he's a bright young leader. And now he will train others and he will be a bishop one day and he will help transform the church in this country. And I had been embarrassed at the thought of even giving this meager gift. What difference can our meager offerings make in this world? Well, look to the story of the loaves and the fishes. In the hands of Jesus, your meager offerings and mine will be multiplied and given meaning in eternity. So church, we see the overwhelming need in this world we look to Jesus and we hear his command, you give them something to eat. Will we stop our bad discipleship math and learn to count like Christians? Our offering to the power of Jesus will satisfy the world in ways we could never ask or imagine. It's not a question of if Jesus is calling you. It's a question of whether you're giving back to him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.